hello, and welcome to Things That Make You Go Woo. I'm your host, Emily Barnard, also known as Emily and Her Stars. I'm a medium, an astrologist, an Akashic Records reader, an artist, and an all-around just silly and curious gal. In this podcast, I'll be sharing the things and people I find fascinating, funny, and inspirational. Things that I hope will certainly make you go woo, too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. I just wanted to take a minute and thank all of you who have listened, who've reached out and said how much you're enjoying the podcast. It really, it truly, it means the world to me. If you have the time, I would love if you could leave a rating and a review wherever you downloaded this episode from. The only way my little show is going to find its way to others is when you share and review. So I so appreciate you taking the time too. With Venus still in retrograde for the entire month of January 2022, we are meant as a collective to be reevaluating what we love and value. A bit of that energy should be spent on our internal landscapes, right? What do we love? What do we desire? What do we even value? However, we also have this amazing thing going on in the sky right now too, where Neptune, the planet, is in the sign of Pisces. And Jupiter is right there pumping it all up. So what does this all mean? Well, again, collectively, The planet of our dreams and ideals is taking a big dive into the sign of dreams and ideals. (laughs) And Jupiter is right there to make them bigger and better. Now, Neptune only flies through its home sign of Pisces once every 164 years. Think of it as a major kind of amping up of the creative and psychic energy with a kick. Musicians, poets, And artists of all kinds are going to feel inspiration and creativity literally bloom. Art influences everything in our lives, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. From the design of your water bottle, to the clothes, to the shelves that you have in your house, and even the styling of your car. Beauty and design are everywhere. And so for today's woo, let's dive into the woo of beauty. So 164 years ago, the last time Neptune was in Pisces was 1858. Now, Neptune hangs out in each sign for about 13 and a half years, give or take a little and some retrogrades. I wanted to look into beauty and fashion and even the art of the 1860s to get an idea of the transformation that we last went through. Cage crinoline was all the rage. Think hoop skirts. Instead of layers and layers of petticoats to get that full look, hoops were relatively affordable and really reached the peak of giant skirts during this time. By 1868, the front of the skirt had flattened and we moved into bustles to accentuate the booty. And it kind of also allowed you to fit through the door, although somehow sitting apparently still wasn't in fashion. (laughs) Everything about this time got bigger and flowier than it had been. The use of the sewing machine grew immensely and suddenly people could make their own clothing. 
Hair that started out the decade before parted down the middle with small braids tucked behind each ear and maybe across the forehead. By the end of the decade had turned into big curls with extra poofs and ribbons and everything extra you could add in was all the rage. Everything was gaining volume. The biggest revolution in women's wear, though, was the invention of haute couture by the fashion houses of Paris. Now, Charles Frederick Worth was born in England, but moved to Paris when he was a young man. He worked in the fabric houses and of Paris and no doubt was influenced by the rich and decadent fabrics being produced for homes and businesses. But in 1858, he partnered with Otto Gustave Boberg, and by 1860, they were the upper crust of French society, and they dressed everyone, including Empress Eugene. The House of Worth really rocketed to success, and soon aristocratic women from all across Europe and wealthy socialites in America were flocking to Paris to purchase dresses. What set them apart were their distinctive fabrics, luxurious trims, unbeatable fit, think this is pre-spandex, <laughs> and their ingenious designs. The House of Worth changed fashion forever, and it was in operation for 98 years. Now, all of this got me thinking. Here we are moving into 2022, and the very idea of skinny jeans is on its way out. Fashion magazines are wanting us to throw out those dated skin-tight versions in favor of wide, and I mean wide-legged jeans. Voluminous bohemian tops are all the rage, and I can't help but see the silhouette shifting to the more is more is more. And the hair. I mean, I'm currently rocking my very own middle-parted head of hair, (laughs) but I can't help but think that Maybe big, giant hair teased and poofed with added bangs and baubles and pins is going to be making a comeback this decade. Certainly, it will be a formidable one when it comes to fashion. So if our trends, so to speak, are really that affected by the stars and the woo, what else in fashion and beauty has been affected through time? If we go all the way back, and I mean all the way back to prehistoric times, we find the earliest examples of women as rocks and small clay beans who are usually quite voluptuous. Now we're talking 24,000 to 22,000 BC. And if you aren't familiar with the Venus of Willendorf, I suggest you pop over and take a peek on the things that make you go woo Instagram feed, or even just Google it. And you will see what looks like a super curvy voluptuous woman in every bit of her is an excess. For years, men, archaeologists, thought that this was because apparently cavemen were hot for women that could birth them children and keep them warm at night. But it really took a woman archaeologist to realize that if you, as a woman, were to peer down at your body, not forward in a mirror, but to look down and see yourself, you actually see this disproportionate version right? You see your breasts being enlarged, bigger than they are, and your feet and your legs are tiny. And if you look at the Venus of Willendorf and look at her from the top down at the same angle, it's really apparent that she is probably much more a self-created piece based on a woman's view of her own body. Not some fetish that a man would carry in his pocket, but a celebration of a woman's body by a woman. One of the earliest examples we have of humans marking things is a bone, and it has 28 little slash dash marks in it. 
28. Now, most men don't care what happens every 28 days, but you better believe every single woman cares. So what was prehistoric beauty based on? Survival. Eat what you can, when you can, so you don't starve when you can't. Healthy, able to produce children, and able to work. These are not heroin chic babes. Next in line are the Egyptians. Here we see some of the earliest examples of makeup for both genders. Women were on average about five feet tall. Curvy hips weren't necessarily in fashion, but perky breasts were. (laughs) In fact, some of the mummies of older women whose natural curves had sagged a bit over the years were stuffed with wax or sawdust to give them the necessary curves needed in the afterlife. Everything you did in this life was to prepare you for the afterlife. Long, glowing hair, straight bangs, wigs when necessary to achieve the look, and a huge emphasis on eyes. Now those elaborate cat eye designs that you're so familiar with were made with coal eyeliner. And instead of doing it for the sake of beauty, it actually suggested wealth and status. Now green malachite stone was crushed and made into eyeshadow, which was believed to evoke the gods Horus and Ra and would ward off harmful illnesses. Lips and cheeks were stained red as a sign of health and virility. Now this was a time when you didn't want to appear bulky, but rather sinuous and lean and healthy. You were not starving and you didn't need to worry about your next meal. Everything was provided always. You weren't an overworked slave and you weren't fighting for your life in the wilderness. This was about looking privileged and your appearance was your top priority. Now, how about those Greeks and Romans? It was at about this time with the introduction of Christianity that women were first described as beautiful, evil things. Evil because of their beauty and beautiful because of the evil. That is an actual quote from Plato. Being born a hot guy back then, so lucky. Being born as a bombshell woman, eh, not so much. Ancient statues show us that artists' idealized form for women was largish hips, full breasts, and a not-so-quite-flat stomach. In fact, some of the women looked downright masculine, and Plato's golden ratio rule became the bar that all beauty was held to. Women's faces, he said, should be two-thirds as wide as they are long, and both sides should be perfectly symmetrical. None of this cute, quirky, and different. Most women needed to look like adolescent boys. And most men wanted to look like adolescent boys too. (laughs) Roman men were known to paint their heads and camouflage bald spots, lighten their skin with powder, and paint their nails with, and I kid you not, this is a little stomach turning, but an elixir of pig's fat and blood. Yeah, to be beautiful in antiquity was tough and smelly. (laughs) Now, religious regulations led to modesty and strict values that carried right through the Middle Ages. The term hysteria derived from the word hystera, as in relating to the uterus or belonging to the womb. The very condition of having a womb and giving birth to children, or even not giving birth to children, were thought to be diseases unique to women. 
and entirely imagined disorder led women to be institutionalized and treated with hysterectomies, right? The idea that women are hysterical comes from this idea of having a womb. Women were mad, not mentally stable, evil, weak, and definitely prone to witchcraft. To be a woman during this time was, to say the least, dangerous. Beauty standards were modesty, beautiful, but not too beautiful. Young women were prized for their innocence. And if you could marry off your daughter before the age of 15, even better. Let her be someone else's problem when she turned old. If you were widowed or abandoned, then it must be your fault. And don't you dare go getting old, having a birthmark, or lose any of your hair. These are surefire signs that you are a witch. Now, I've delved into this topic on more than one occasion, but it always fascinates me how so much of this still resonates with our current society. Don't any of you go getting old on me. (laughs) By the time the Renaissance rolled around, I think women, and men too, really, were ready to throw the strict stereotypes out the window. Suddenly, from about 1300 to 1500, there are naked breasts in nearly every painting. (laughs) I'm joking. But in all seriousness, right, this huge deviation from the Middle Ages, sort of constrictions and rules, is suddenly opened up and women are again idealized. Back come the curvy, pale, flushed cheeks and round faces of Raphael. He openly admitted that most of his paintings were not based on real models, simply his imaginary preferences for what a beautiful woman should look like. Now, this was true for many Renaissance painters, where women were transformed from objects of fertility to objects of lust and beauty. During this time, I have no doubt that some waistlines increased, but for the average working woman, very little probably changed. Unless you could afford to embellish your gowns, wash them regularly, purchase more than one or two in your lifetime, these trends were not going to reach you. This was strictly upper class. Now, Queen Elizabeth I, not our current queen, was crowned in 1558, and she ushered in the era of makeup. At this point, society still felt that a woman with a full face of makeup was an incarnation of Satan. And this 25-year-old queen liberally slapped on the face paint. Her signature pale skin and red lips became a trending makeup routine and a symbol of class at the time. The paler you were, the higher your status was. Poor people had to work outside and get tan lines, so the wealthy would show off their pale skin as a symbol of opulent indoor living. In trying to maintain this virginal image, the queen would paint her face with a thick coat of white lead-based powder and vinegar. Members of high society, women and men, followed suit And soon there were rumors that red lipstick could work magic and even ward off death. Not one to bail on her own brand, Elizabeth died wearing her white face mask and thick, sticky, mercury-laden lip rouge. The side effects of lead and mercury poisoning? 
Well, her skin actually began to corrode slowly over her lifetime, causing her to apply more and more lead paint. Her hair began to fall out, leading her to seek out wigs. And the mercury? Well, memory loss, irritability, and depression. This wasn't an age where skin care was really understood. It wasn't even deemed necessary to bathe regularly. And so the queen would leave her makeup her makeup on for a week straight and then use a concoction of eggshells, allium, and mercury to scrub and peel it off. It was actually illegal during this time to paint an unflattering portrait of the queen. And in her later years, she adamantly refused to let doctors anywhere near her or examine her. She was nearly bald And having suffered smallpox and lead poisoning for years, her skin was without a doubt deeply troubled. I would like to note that the makeup she used, Cirrus, goes all the way back to 600 BC and probably earlier, when the women and men in Rome powdered their faces with lead too. And it wasn't until 1634 that it was finally classified as a poison. So you see, beauty is ever-evolving, and European royalty (laughs) have a habit of poisoning themselves with lead and mercury, as well as inbreeding a little too much. And it's really no wonder that by the time Louis XIV ascended to the throne, he was well on his way to wearing makeup and wigs and even painted on beauty marks. Before the French Revolution, makeup and insanely ornate gowns were worn equally by men and women. However, after the Revolution, People wanted to distance themselves from their disgraced royalty. Makeup became much simpler and gowns were pared down. Unfortunately, it didn't take too long for upper society to pick it all up again, though. And ladies, especially, got a hold of makeup. Men, on the other hand, didn't really grab a hold of it again until the 1980s. Even though women were wearing makeup, it was very modestly done. And the last thing you wanted was anything showy. The Victorians liked their women to look pale, frail, and weak. No particular body part was necessarily emphasized as long as you didn't look too strong. Think dying of tuberculosis, seriously hot. Being able to carry water up three flights of stairs, eh, Can someone else do it for you? Because no. (laughs) All this leads us back to where we started in about 1858, when fashion was about corsets, small waists, and luxurious fabrics. For the first time, for the right price, you could travel to Paris and have custom-made clothing. Paris has been the fashion capital for over a century now. Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Hermes, these brands are still in operation today. What will the next revolution in art and fashion be? I personally hope it's not the 80s reboot of the mullet, even though I hear that's coming back. And I also hope we don't go all futuristic and like Jerry Seinfeld jokes, all vote on one jumpsuit and then that's all we wear forever. (laughs) But beauty standards are ever evolving both through religious and a spiritual lens, as well as by the influence of the planets in the sky. And who knows, maybe we'll all just learn how to instantly manifest our Pinterest boards into our closets. That would be so ideal. (laughs) 
I really hope you've all enjoyed this episode. And during this month of January, and while we've got all this creative energy flowing in, I hope you're able to sink in to your imagination, your dreams, and your ideals, and bring out the best in what you want to envision in this world. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Things That Make You Go Woo. You can help me out by leaving a positive rating and a review wherever you downloaded this episode. Be sure and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Emily and Her Stars. You can also reach out via email anytime, emilyandherstars at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Things That Make You Go Woo.